You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and while you're turning there, I just want you to know that these guys right here played at Celebrate Freedom yesterday. Let's go. Yeah. So they did such a good job. They represented you and, and us well um, yesterday. As you're turning to Romans chapter 8, let me uh, just throw one thing out. This really is more of a reminder than anything else. But, uh, you know, uh, it was back in the early fall, we did a, a sermon on singleness. And I just want to remind our church family that we want to be a place that both cares for and celebrates those who are single in our church family. We want that. We want to be a church who does that. And just to our singles, really briefly, I just want to remind you and just say this again publicly that we love you. We are so grateful you are at, are kind of in and a part of this church family. We're so grateful that you're a part of us in this church family. So I want you to know that we love and appreciate you. And if you're married in the room, the only way a culture in a church is created where singles are cared for and celebrated is if married folk invite single folk into their lives. So I just want to encourage all of our married folk to be doing that, to be thinking about what does it look like for me to proactively invite singles into this, the, the rhythms and, and the norms in our life. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking about this this week and uh, remembered a, uh, one of the statements that one of our young singles um, emailed to me um, uh, prior to that sermon. And he said this, there's one situation that occurs where I'm acutely aware of my singleness. Many Sundays I go to service with hundreds of people only to eat lunch by myself. I'm very proactive in seeking out other people, but unfortunately many of them already have plans with their immediate or extended families. As my family is not local, it would be a special blessing to me for families to invite me over for a Sunday lunch. And I, I'm just throwing that out as just a, one of the many simple ways that if you're a married couple, that you could proactively be serving and helping us create a culture that celebrates and, and really cares for our singles. So I just want, I want to remind our church family that it's one thing that we're praying for, asking the Lord to do in this place, is to create that sort of a culture that would care for and celebrate our singles. Okay, we are to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. One of the reasons that we are preaching through Romans chapter 8 and by the way, it's called by, by many the greatest chapter in the Bible. And, and one of the reasons that we are preaching through Romans 8, one of the reasons it's called the greatest chapter in the Bible is because it is packed full of gospel promises. When you're reading Romans chapter 8, I, here would be the picture I would get for it. It's like you are opening your mouth and you're trying to drink gospel promises from God himself with a fire hydrant. I mean, that, that's the picture of Romans 8. It's just spitting out one gospel promise after another over and over and over. Then by the time you get to verses 14 through 17, we are on the top of Everest when it comes to the promises. We are at the apex of the promises of God where in verses 14 through 17, God reminds us that if you're in Christ, you are, you're his kids. That you are his, this is your new identity, that God is your father. You are his kids. It's the most profound thing that could be said about a human being, that God is your father, you are his kids. For everyone who is in Christ, that is true for you. And part of what it means to grow as a Christian, this is one way you could think about what it looks like to grow as a Christian. It is when the kids of God, the children of God, become more and more alive to the multifaceted privileges and promises that come with being God's kids. 
This is what it looks like for us to grow up into maturity, for us to see what are our our privileges, what comes along with being a kid of God, and then for us to actually live as if those things are true, to to claim those things as our own. So so, so in in 14 through 17, the theme of the passage, God is announcing, you are my kids, I'm your dad. Uh, But then last week we looked at verse 17 where Paul goes on and says, here's a part of, of you, of this new identity. P- part of what it means for you to be a son or a daughter of God means that you are also an heir of God. This is verse 17, that if you're kids, you're heirs. If you're children of God, then you're heirs of God. And, and that word heir is pointing us forward. I mean, one of the ways that we talk about the good news of Jesus is by summarizing it in three simple statements. Statement number one, we're all idiots. That's a really humbling statement, isn't it? We're all idiots. Number two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And number three, anyone can get in on this. Anyone who is willing to to humble themselves, to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, you can get in on that incredibly bright future. But when Paul is talking about us being heirs of God, he is pointing us forward to this incredibly bright future that you and I have in Jesus. But then he goes on in verse 17 and provides one, what I would just call searching qualification. He says, you know, if you're kids, then you're heirs, provided that you suffer with him in order that you also may be glorified with him. Verse 17, the the qualification, if if we wanna be heirs of God, he is saying, it first means that you suffer. That this is part one. If, if you want the glory later, it means that you're gonna suffer now. And should the kids of God expect anything different? Should brothers of Jesus, sisters of Jesus expect anything different? Here was the pathway of Jesus. For Jesus, it was suffering first, then glory later. First, it was the cross, then it was the crown. First, mistreatment, then triumph. That was the path of Jesus. And, and as followers of Jesus, here's what we learn from the New Testament. That the pathway of Jesus is now the pattern for all of his followers. Like if you're following Jesus, it is going to cost you something. That's the point he's making. It's gonna cost you dearly now in this life to follow Jesus. Now, here is the the question. That that verse 17 sets up verses 18 through 25. Verse 17 puts the question on the table that verses 18 through 25 are going to answer. And here's the question verse 17 puts on the table. If if it's gonna be suffering now to follow Jesus, if if us pushing our chips in with Jesus means now in this life, it's gonna be harder for us. There's gonna be suffering now because of that decision. If that is true, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? This is the question coming out of verse 17. Is it really worth suffering now for Jesus' sake? And here's the truth. Many conclude that it's not. You probably know people who have concluded that it's not. Jesus talks about them in one of his parables where he compares them to a seed planted in rocky soil. Do you remember that parable? That the seed sprouts up. They begin with this gusto for Jesus. Man, it is all in. We are with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the sun comes out, the sun of suffering, the heat of suffering. And all of a sudden, these guys who started with great gusto following Jesus have this tendency to fall away because they've concluded that it's just not worth suffering now for Jesus. It's just not worth it. But Paul, on the other hand, is saying, no, it is worth it. It is worth any suffering now to have Jesus. It's worth anything that you might endure now if you can have Jesus. It's worth it all. And and now we're to ask the question, why, Paul? Why is it worth it? Verses 18 through 25 are meant to answer that question. Verse 18. Why is it worth it, Paul? 
Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what they see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. In this passage, to answer the question, why is it worth it? Why is it worth suffering now to have Jesus? Why is it worth it? Paul gives two announcements and one admonition. Two announcements and one kind of warning and encouragement to us. So let's start with the two announcements. Paul gives two announcements here that I want to point out to you. Here's announcement number one. Why is suffering worth it? Here's the reason. Reason number one, announcement number one, because there is an incredibly bright future awaiting us. Because in front of us, there is an incredibly bright future. Now, in, last week, we talked about being heirs of God. So we just kind of tried to unpack what does it mean that we have an inheritance coming? What does that inheritance look like? So we talked a lot about that last week. But one of the things that I said toward the end of talking about that was when you're thinking about what it means to be an heir of God or what it means to receive an inheritance someday from God, that is not just something done for us. It is also something done to us. Our inheritance, what God is doing in this incredibly bright future that awaits us is not just something he's going to say, hey, here you go, have this. It's, all, it's going to be that, but, but it's more than that. It's also going to be something that God does in us and to us. Now, this is what he's saying in verse 17. I just want you to, to go back to that, that verse and look at this because it's a really interesting thing that Paul does in verse 17. He says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now, it's interesting to me to, to get to the last four words in verse 17 because they're not what I expect them to say. I expect Paul to say, we're gonna suffer in order that we also may inherit with him. But he doesn't say inherit with him. Rather than saying inherit, he drops that metaphor and he, he goes to a different metaphor. Now, why is Paul dropping the metaphor? Why does he lose the inheritance metaphor and go with the glory metaphor? Here's the reason. It's because the inheritance metaphor doesn't do justice to what Paul is saying. It, it just, I think this is what's going on in Paul's mind in verse 17. He's using the word inheritance to describe this incredibly bright future. And then he's realizing that the, the metaphor of an inheritance just isn't cutting it. It's just not a big enough metaphor to take in this incredibly bright future. So he pushes human language all the way to its limits. He's trying to find what is the metaphor, what is the word that will give us the biggest kind of description of what this bright future will be. And he lands on the word glory. 
It is the biggest word that he could possibly have inserted into this, you know, into this passage to help us see how great and how grand and how big and how beautiful this bright future is. Paul is saying here, in some mysterious way, you are going to be caught up in that. It's going to happen to you. You, in some mysterious way, are going to be glorified with Jesus. Can you imagine that? You, what has happened to Jesus in his resurrection, Paul is saying in some crazy way, that is gonna be happening to you someday. It's the word glory or the theological word glorification. Now, what does that word glorification mean? What is embedded into this idea of us being glorified with Jesus? Listen to Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite kind of current theologians. Listen to him, how he describes or just defines what this glorification is. He describes it like this. Glorification is a theological word. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. So when we are rescued by Jesus, we have all of these promises, so many of which are in our future. Glorification is that final payment on the promises. It is the big and last thing that God is going to do for us. He says, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when, when Christ returns and raises us from the dead. From the dead, the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and then re reunites them with their souls. So now you've got body and soul coming back together. And he changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now, let me just highlight two things about this idea of glorification. When it comes to this incredibly bright future that we have awaiting us, two, two things about glorification. Number one, part of what glorification means is that we'll receive renewed bodies. You see this in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, so what's Paul saying there? He's saying when you become a Christian, you have the first fruits, you have the initial down payment on the promise. The spirit of God now indwells you, now is bringing Jesus to life for you, now is working inside of you, for you and with you. You now have the indwelling spirit, but it is just the down payment on the promises. There is still so much in front of us that we are still groaning with eager expectation for what is to come. Now, what is to come? Paul says, here's what's to come, your adoption. We, we have been adopted, yes, but there's so much of our adoption in front of us that it is right for Paul to say, but it's still in the future. Now, what is going to be this final and full adoption of us? What's, what's gonna happen in that moment? Paul describes it. He says, here's what's gonna happen. Your bodies are going to be redeemed. You're gonna have new resurrection bodies, renewed bodies. This is what is in store for every son and daughter of God. Now, whether or not you know it, whether or not you use language that would describe it like this, the deepest part of every human soul groans for the day of their glorification. There is a, right now inside of you, there is a deep groaning for glorification. Um, I always enjoy going to birthday parties, especially for people who are climbing on up that old ladder of age. And uh, one of the things that I always like to do in those moments is just to kind of get a sense of how are you taking your age? Like, what's it doing to you? How are you feeling about that? 
And uh, so, so I just love to ask them, you know, if you're turning, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is, 70, whatever it is that you're turning, like how, how, how is that landing on you that, that you are aging? How is that working with you? And if people are honest, you know what they'll say in that moment? I hate it. That's what I think about it. I don't like it. And for good reason. Now, why would they be saying that? Here's the reason. It's because the older we get, the more we begin to break down, right? I mean, this is happening to all of us in varying degrees in the room right now. We, we're all experiencing this. I mean, I, you know, it was funny. I have a, uh, an older uh, friend of mine. He's about 50 who was uh, just laughing the other day. He said, you're not going to believe this. My waistline was the exact same uh, that it was when I was 25, the problem is it just moved down like four inches. And I'm like, yes to that. This is all of our problems. I mean, just think about kind of the life cycle that we are all in. Um, we, we are born and it's just like this explosive growth and development. And, and we continue to mature in our strength in all of these sort of physical ways. And then we turn about 30. And from 30, it is just this, we, we were getting this slow physical descent down where we are breaking down. We are rusting out. Who in this room isn't feeling that? That the older you get, the more you're looking at your own physical body and you're realizing this, there are things that I am losing in this life that I am never going to get back. Vibrancy, strength, beauty, health, that in this life I am never going to get back. This is why it is appropriate for the person turning the next age up, it's appropriate for them to say, it is not fun, I don't like this. Now, what is that dislike in our hearts? Deep in our soul, why is it that we do not like our breaking down bodies? Here's what it is. That is a groaning deep in your soul for glorification. That's what that is. That, that moment of, I don't like what is happening with my body. That, that moment where you feel that in a really deep, tangible way, that is a signpost pointing you to the promises of Romans 8, the day of your glorification. The day when everything that suffering and death have taken away, God will give back to you and in better condition. It is a signpost pointing us to that great future that's in front of us. Now, what are, what are, what are our glorified bodies gonna look like? How is this gonna go down? What's it gonna feel like to have renewed resurrection bodies? You know, when you're thinking about that, the Bible doesn't give us all that we would wanna know, but I think it does invite us to use a sanctified kind of imagination to just think about and dream about what, what are our bodies gonna one day look like? I, I love how Jonathan Edwards does this. He was an old pastor um, a couple hundred years ago in America. He said, you know, when I think about our resurrection bodies, what if rather than having five senses, what if our renewed resurrection bodies, what, what if they have a thousand senses? Like senses we didn't even know could be senses. But we have all of these, with these new senses now to take in God's creation, to take in God himself in new and bigger ways that we could have never have dreamed of. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it. When he's thinking about our resurrected bodies, he says this. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into. I read this last week, but just let this encourage you again. Here's what these resurrection bodies are going to look like, he says. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now know. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. 
Now this is what we are in for and nothing less. God meant what he said. In another place where he's describing this, he says, if you could just look at your like redeemed neighbor, if you could just see what they will be, like that neighbor you just bump into and he's just another guy down the street. If you could just look at what they will be one day when God's finished with them, he says, it would likely make you fall to your knees and, and you'll be tempted to worship that person. It's gonna be that good, these resurrection bodies, these renewed bodies that God has for us. So here's the first thing that we see. We see that, that part of what it means to be glorified with Jesus, this incredibly bright future, is we're gonna have renewed bodies. Stonegate Church, your best days are not behind you. Your best days are in front of you. This is what Paul's saying. You've got these renewed bodies coming your way, but it's not just that you're gonna have these renewed bodies. Paul says, in the day of our glorification, we're also going to receive the inward beautiness of holiness. The, the inward beauty of holiness. This is another part of our glorification. Can you imagine what life would be like if you did not have that old flesh in you, that old part of you that's at war with God that you're constantly just battling? I mean, how many of us in here have looked at our life and just in frustration said, how much longer am I going to struggle with that? I have, I have committed this sin for like the 10,000th time and it's been like over a, a 30 year span. I mean, you would think after 30 years, there would be a measure of freedom from this thing. You would think that I would stop doing these things. I would stop believing these things. I would, my, just the bent of my heart would stop grabbing at these things. You would think that th this would stop, but it just doesn't. I mean, have you ever just looked at your life and just been so frustrated that you just keep failing and falling and struggling with the same things? If you've ever experienced that, what is that? That is a groaning for your glorification. That is a groaning for that day when that old flesh in you that's been dethroned, that, that old rebellious part of you that's been dethroned but not yet destroyed, it is a groaning for that day when God will finally destroy that part of you. That, that part of you that doesn't trust God, that's in rebellion against God. Can you imagine what it's gonna be like when you have unhindered access toward God? Where, where you're not experiencing God through your own sinfulness, the flesh that's still in you? Can you imagine that? Paul's saying that, that's coming for you. This is your incredibly bright future that, that, that is in your, you know, that's in your future. Now look at verse 19. I just want to make one quick comment on it. In verse 19, Paul is trying to give, give us a sense of how great is this thing going to be? Your, glor your glorification. How great is that moment going to be for you? Here's how great it's going to be for you, he says. The creation even the creation, right, right now, the creation is waiting. They, they wait with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Your future is so bright that right now, the oceans, the trees, the animals, it is as if they are on tiptoe, just waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God in their renewed state. They just cannot imagine. It's as if Paul is looking at you and saying, hey, let's just deal with this question of, is it worth the suffering now? Is it really worth the suffering now to follow Jesus? Paul is saying, even the creation is looking at what you will be and they are saying to you, it is gonna be worth it. Your future is so, creation is saying this, your future is so bright that whatever it costs you right now along the pathway of following Jesus, it will be well worth it in the end. Paul's saying, this is how incredibly bright our future is. 
Now here is announcement number two. Announcement number one, we have an incredibly bright future. Like if you're a son or daughter of God, if by faith you have thrown your life in with Jesus, you have an incredibly bright future. But that's not the only announcement in this passage. Here's the second announcement. There is also an incredibly bright future for the universe. It's not just for you, but for the universe. You know, one of the surprising things that uh, I didn't know when I first became a Christian, that over the years, as I've just in some ways matured in how I am relating to God and seeing what the good news of Jesus is, here is one of the surprising discoveries that I've made. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is much bigger than I, at first I thought it was. So when I first became a Christian, my thought of the good news of Jesus is, this is how God is, is fixing me. This is how God is taking a broken me and fixing it. This is how God is rescuing me. This is how God is redeeming me. This is how God is reconciling me to himself. This is how God's doing all of those things. And the good news of Jesus is not less than that, but the good news of Jesus is much more than that. It is not just how God is fixing and rescuing you. It is also the way God is fixing and rescuing the universe. The, maybe you could think of it this way. The good news of Jesus is bigger than your small little life. It is as big as the universe is. Now, this is what Paul is inviting us into. Now, just think about the story of, of the Bible for a minute. Here's one way you could summarize the story of the Bible. Uh, you, when you open the Bible, it begins with God creating. This is Genesis 1 and 2. God is creating the heavens and the earth, everything that we see. He's perfectly formed that so it will be inhabitable for his, the crown of his creation, our first parents, to, to enter into the Garden of Eden. So God is creating. But then you get to Genesis 3, and here's what we find. Sin is breaking. Part one, God creating. Part two, sin is breaking. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate the forbidden fruit and introduced sin into the world, in that moment, in a very real way, creation snapped. It broke. And in response to that sin, God didn't just um, curse the serpent. He didn't just curse um, Eve. He didn't just curse Adam. He also cursed creation. Creation is under a curse because of sin. Um, listen to how... Um, the Bible describes it in Genesis 3. Um, God says this to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns, and this is part of what the curse is going to look like. Thorns and thistles, the, the, the creation, it shall bring forth for you. Now in verse 20 of Romans 8, Paul is looking back to that moment in Genesis 3. So look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20. This is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about how sin has broken creation and how creation is now under a curse because of sin. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, namely God, who subjected it. So it's subjected to futility. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, um, the preacher of a century or so ago said it. He said, everything here is blighted. Everything you see is blighted and subject to storm or to decay or to sudden death or to calamity of some sort. He says, it is a fair world. There are beauties in the world. If you just look around, you're going to see some things that are really beautiful. It's a fair world, he says, but there is the shadow of the curse over it all. Even the things that you look at and think, man, that is really beautiful. Even there, you're going to see that is under the shadow of the curse, he says. I love, the, I love this last line. He says, the slime of the serpent is on all of our Edens now. 
Now that's true. Everything that you touch, everything that you see, everything that you experience in creation in some way, shape, or form has the slime of the serpent on it. It is under a curse. Listen to how one author says it. He says, nature is not what it ought to be or what it was created to be. It is wonderful to see how nature's life-giving quality continually seeks to reestablish itself, bringing new life out of death. So as an, example, as an example, flowers grow from the fertilizer of dead organisms. But he goes on. So even though it's, it's, it's great to see that life-giving quality in creation, he says, but the whole universe, here's the problem with it. It's deteriorating and running down and losing more energy than it can create and generate. Everything in nature wears down and dies. And then this last line, he says, nature is currently a killer. Now we all feel this. You can't live in a fallen world and not brush into the reality that the creation is under a curse. Things are just not the way that things should be. It's, our world is so broken that we ought to be amazed, not when things break in front of us, but when anything actually goes right. We ought to be amazed at that. Things are so broken that we should be amazed that we see anything going right. Now, see, here's part of what Paul is doing in this passage. He is trying to help us not fall into the fallacy. Uh, and, you're gonna, and if you're not careful, you're going to do this. Paul's trying to help with this. Uh, falling into the fallacy of looking out and, and experiencing creation, seeing creation and thinking it is in its natural state. You're never going to see a tree, an ocean, a beach, a mountain. You're never going to see any part of creation in its natural state. What you see now is creation in its unnatural state. This is all of creation. It is now under a curse. It is now being restrained in ways. It is not what it could be, not what it should be, not what God created it to be. I love what Eugene Peterson says about it. He says, everything in creation is being more or less held back. It's just not what it was designed to be. It's not showing the beauty it was designed to show. It's not living in the design that God had originally intended it to live in. But it's not, all, it's not all doom and gloom. So storyline of the Bible goes like this. God creating, sin breaking, fracturing. Now creation is under the curse. But all of that is in hope, verse 20. You see the last word in, or last phrase in verse 20? Yes, it's subjected to futility. But it's subjected to futility in hope. In other words, God has not given up on his creation. He has a plan for his creation. The, the storyline of the Bible, let's just continue it. Starts with, with God creating. Then it goes to sin breaking. And then here is the final stage of the storyline of the Bible. God recreating or God renewing the, his creation. This is the end game of God's creation. And God's renovation plan started 2,000 years ago in the life, death, and in particular the resurrection of his son. It's in that moment that the fixing nature of God began to take full effect. That the, reno the renovation of God is now underway. Not just for you. It is for you, but it's not just for you. It's also for the entirety of the universe. I, I love um, one story I read a few years ago of this little boy in Africa asking his mom. He looked up at his mom and asked the question, what does God do all day? Isn't that a great question? I love that. What does God do all day? I mean, think about how you would answer that. What is God doing all day, every day of his life? The mom looked back at her kid and said, Here, here's what God's doing all day. He's fixing things. 
I think that is such a great description of what God does all day, every day, is he is fixing things. And he's, here's the, the thing, the, when you think about his fixing nature, the good news of Jesus is bigger than just you. He's fixing you, yes, but he's not just fixing you. He is fixing everything that is broken, all the way to verse 21, all the way to creation, so that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's not just fixing you. He's fixing the entirety of this universe. Now, just to apply this for a moment, this just helps us get a sense of what heaven will one day be like for us. You know, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we get a sense of, of God's renovation, what his plans are for the restoring of his creation. And he doesn't call it a non-earth in Revelation 21. He calls it a new earth. God is gonna take this earth and he's gonna bring heaven down to it and he's going to restore and renew and recreate this creation. Now that informs our view of heaven. So many people have abstract thoughts of heaven. It's as if we are in a cloud and just kind of floating along. That is not a biblical thought of heaven. Heaven will be earthy. It's gonna be earthy. I think about the picture that we see in Revelation 21. And let me just show you what all is in the picture God gives us of heaven. In heaven, it says there's gonna be people, mountains, trees, water, houses, cities, buildings, streets. They're all mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. That means it's gonna be an earthy heaven. It's the best of this life now without sin, without the pollution and the tarnishing and the defilement of sin. This is what is coming for us. Now listen to Randy Alcorn as he applies this. He says, the biblical doctrine of the new earth implies something startling. That if we want to know what the ultimate heaven, our eternal home will be like, he says this, the best place to start is by looking around us. So look out the window, take a walk, talk with your friends, use your God-given skills to paint or draw or create or build a shed or write a book. But imagine all of that, all of it in its original condition, undefiled by sin. That's what's waiting for us. In heaven, we're going to experience the person we were made for and we're going to experience the place we were made for. And it is earthy. It resembles now, but it un, you know, undefiled by sin. And here's the great news. We're gonna have resurrected and renewed bodies to enjoy it all for all eternity. Paul's saying, this is the incredible, bright, incredibly bright future that's awaiting you if you're in Christ, me if I'm in Christ, all of us are in Christ. Anyone can get in on this incredibly bright future. Now, I want to finish by uh, giving the admonition, the encouragement. Paul is, is showing us, this is why present suffering is worth it. We have an incredibly bright future in front of us. Now, here's the encouragement, and we'll finish here. The encouragement in this passage, the, 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 the place that Paul is pushing us toward in this passage, it's Paul saying this, we must set our hearts on our incredibly bright future. I mean, this is the take home. This is like where the rubber meets the road here. It's just Paul looking at you and I and saying, here's where this has got to take us. It doesn't do you any good just to hear this. We've got to take this somewhere. And here's where it should take us. It should take us to spending our life, using our life to give us a realizing sense of heaven. 
to, we, we need to be people who are constantly setting our heart and setting our hope onto this incredibly bright future. This is what he says in verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? He's saying that so much of our salvation is still before us. It's still in the future. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. And hear me on this. Waiting is a proactive task. It's not a passive thing. Waiting is an active thing. It takes proactive work to wait well for these things. So I want to just end by giving you three ways that we can wait well. If the, if the place this passage really presses us is to say, yes, this incredibly bright future is in front of you. And, and now Paul is saying, so set your heart on that. But what are some ways that we can be encouraged toward that? Here's three quick ways. Number one is let's recognize the battle. Let's recognize that there is a war going on for where our hearts will be set, for what our hearts will be set on. And this is the way I talked about it last week. When you boil it down, there's really only two ways that you can live. There's really just two. Way number one is you can live for the here and now. And if you live for the here and now, here's what it produces. It produces a life that is trying to secure all of your happiness and all of your pleasure right now. So everything is about the here and now. So we eke out whatever we can now. It's eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die, right? So that's way number one. Way number two is that we can live in light of this incredibly bright future. It's either one. There is no third way. It's either we are living for the here and now or we are living for future glory. Those are the only two ways you can live. And your life right now, when you rolled out of bed this morning and you came and you're sitting in this service, you are being controlled by one of those two paradigms. One of these two paradigms is under your life like an engine moving you somewhere. And it's either it's all about the here and now or it is it's all about future glory. And we need to see which one of those that it is. When you think about your life, what is driving your life here and now or future glory? Listen to how one guy says it. He asked the question this way, where do you look for happiness? Just ask yourself that question. Where are you looking for happiness in this life now or in future glory? Where are you looking for happiness? He says, if you look for your happiness to, to, to this life, your life now as it is, if you look for, for, for happiness to, to your life now, you will end up with nothing. If you look to happiness now in this life, you will end up with nothing, he says, and your life will be worth nothing. You will live out your days with one slapdash attempt of satisfaction after another until death lays down his trump card. That's option one. He says, so think about it. Respect your own happiness. Stake your all on the promises of God on future glory. Stake it all on that. He says, do you not see your life now? Or he says, do you see your life now as the final measure of your happiness? Do you see your life now, your, your little life now, do you see it as, as all of your worth, as all of your significance? He says, this present life of sighs and groans will one day yield to shouts and dances. I love that. 
This present life now with all of its, with all of its sighs and groans, there's going to be a day where it yields to shouts and dances. That's how good our future is going to be. So he says, let that certainty define you. What if we lived by that certainty that our future is going to be that good? So number one, let's recognize the battle. It's either we're living for this life now or we're living for future glory. It's either or. There is no third way. Secondly, let's labor to have our hearts set on heaven. And that requires labor. It requires work. The natural pull of your heart is to the here and now. If you just put your heart on default, kind of it just does its default mode and it just does what it wants to do. It is going to have you believing before you leave this place today that your life is really about right now. Your, your heart's natural pull is in that direction. So we have to war against that. We have to, to labor to keep our incredibly bright future in front of us. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let my desire for my true country, I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it my desire for my true country. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Can you imagine how vibrant our church would be if our church was about pressing on, keeping that future glory alive in our souls, and at the same time, helping others do the same. Can you imagine how great this church culture would be if we did that? Now, this is exactly what Paul is encouraging toward in Colossians chapter three. It'll be on the screen for you. Listen to how he says it in Colossians chapter three. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then do this. Seek the things that are above. That's a command. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this world. Now, why would he say that? He's saying that because he knows our hearts are naturally lured into thinking this world is all there is. So we have to proactively seek the world to come. We have to proactively set our minds on the things to come. Now that word seek or set our minds on, it's the same word used in Luke 15 verse eight when it's describing this lady on a desperate search for her lost coin. She's tearing up her house for the lost coin. She's turning over cushions for the lost coin. She is doing whatever it takes to find the lost coin. And, and Paul is saying, set your mind on heaven like that. Whatever it takes to keep it in front of you, you've got to do it. You've got to keep your mind on the future or you're going to live as if this world is all there is. You're going to spend as if this world is all there is. Your whole mind is going to be warped around this life is it. And Paul's saying it's not it. There is an incredibly bright future and we've got to labor to keep our hearts centered on that. And if, if future glory, if heaven is really our home, and we're going to spend forever there with Jesus in a perfectly renewed creation with perfectly renewed bodies, wouldn't it make sense that we do a lot of thinking about our future home? I mean, doesn't that just kind of make sense that if we're gonna spend forever there, that we would spend a lot of our days now thinking about and, and preparing our heart for that? Listen to how J.C. Ryle, an old English, uh, Anglican bishop, just encourages toward that. Thinking about our home, keeping that in front of us. Listen to what he says. The man who is about to sell for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home. I mean, just imagine you're going to pick up everything tomorrow and you're going to, you're going to go and you're going to uproot and you're going to live in Australia. He's saying, don't you think you would be thinking a little bit about Australia? 
what it's going to be like. How are you going to make it there? What, what's going to, what life is going to be like there? Don't you think you'd be thinking about that? He goes on. That, that person is naturally anxious about, uh, to know something about his future home, its climate, its employment, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All of these are subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity and you are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now, surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it now. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Yes and amen to that, right? If we're going forever there, we should set our minds and figure out what is there going to be like. We should get our hearts ready with eager anticipation for that moment. And last encouragement. Let's frame our bright future with our present suffering. Let's frame our bright future with our present suffering. Now remember, this is written to sufferers. And Paul is comforting sufferers by telling them, all of your present suffering is worth it because you've got future glory coming. So this is what he's saying in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now there are two ways to apply verse 18. Let me just briefly show you the two ways. Here is way number one. Way number one is to frame our suffering with our future. So we're looking at our suffering. We're experiencing our suffering. But, but around our suffering, we've got this incredibly bright future. And, and that incredibly bright future has a way, Paul says, of making our present suffering seem light and trivial. So this is one of the ways you can apply it. If you see your suffering through the lens of, of your future, it makes your suffering seem really manageable. I, I love how one old saint said it. She says, our future glory will make the most miserable earthly life look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. That, that's one of the ways that you can apply this. But here's the other way you can apply it. You can, you can frame our future, future glory, with our, our present suffering. So in this way, you're looking at your future glory and you're trying to understand it and you're seeing it through the lens of your suffering. You're seeing it and allowing suffering now to, to inform you and educate you about how great this future glory is going to be. So just think about your own life. Think about the last time you have just been sucker punched with suffering. I mean, just think about that moment where you got the wind knocked out of you. Grief was so heavy upon you that it was hard to breathe. Think about that moment. And one of the ways that you can apply, you know, verse 18 is by taking that moment and asking this question. How good does our future glory have to be if that suffering that I'm experiencing right now that is just killing me, if it's gonna make this suffering seem light and trivial? How great is that glory gonna be if it's gonna produce that feeling about this current suffering? Now, let me end with this closing exhortation. If I were just condensing down this section of Romans 8 to encourage a church family, I would do it like this. Stone gate. Your best days are not in your past. Your best days are in your future. The night of sin is almost over for you and for me. The dawn is quickly approaching, much sooner than many of us would realize. The dawn of our future glory is quickly coming. We have the first fruit of the Spirit now, and soon we will also receive the redemption of our bodies. So let's not quit. Let's not give up regardless of how bad our present suffering is. 
We hope for what we do not see, but for what God has promised. So let us live with eager expectation. Let's get up on our tiptoes to see what God has in store for you and for me, this incredibly bright future. Let's think with biblical imagination about what our future holds. Stonegate, let you and me, let us, let, let this future glory capture our hearts now so that our lives now will demonstrate the transforming power of gospel hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.